All right, before we get into the questions uh, for this week, I wanted to give just maybe a brief overview or make a couple of comments uh, about the first couple of chapters of Genesis, just in case you didn't get a chance to watch the recording last week. Uh, I apologize for going over an hour there if you did watch, so there will be a bell to keep me on track this week. Um, so here's just some introductory comments about the book of Genesis. First of all, Genesis is foundational to our faith and to the practice of our faith. When I say it's foundational, here's what I mean by that. I have Hebrews 11 on the screen for you, Hebrews 11.3, and it says this, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And here is the reality that we are confronted with on page one of the Bible. Either you believe what Hebrews is saying and what Genesis 1 is teaching about the origin of the world, that God spoke and everything was created, or you believe what secular culture is telling us today, that our world, our universe, is the product of time and chance. On page one of the Bible, you have a decision to make. Did God create the world as the scriptures conclude? Or did evolutionary processes take over? I don't want you to think that this is scientific fact versus blind faith here when I pose this scenario to you. No one was present at the beginning of the world. Both positions require faith. Right? This isn't like the religious people versus the scientific ones of our day. Everyone is exercising faith in understanding how this world came about. And so we are confronted with a decision. Is this God's word? If the Bible cannot be trusted on page one about the origin of the world, then why would we expect that we can trust anything that follows it? Does that make sense? If God's a liar here on page one, then why could we ever conclude Anything true from the scriptures, including who Jesus was, that forgiveness of sins is possible, that Jesus rose from the dead, that we can have hope of eternal life, it doesn't begin in the Gospels. Our faith begins here in Genesis chapter 1. Unless you think I'm being dramatic when I make this conclusion, lest you think that, you know, maybe I'm just going to an extreme set of circumstances here, I want to recount to you a testimony that I heard a couple of years ago. There is this uh, really popular um, YouTube channel uh, that has millions of subscribers, and one of the hosts of this channel a couple of years ago posted a deconstruction testimony. Maybe you've not heard that word deconstruction before. Uh, it really describes the process by which someone who used to believe in Jesus, or said they did, walks away from the faith. And this guy had like an hour or so podcast in which he just said, hey, I was involved in what we might consider Christian ministry, and I've walked away. And that began by him reading books that put forward an evolutionary worldview. And as he's reading these books, he comes to the conclusion that Genesis 1 these opening chapters of the Bible, as they're recounted for us, can't be true. He says, I'm looking at these books that are purporting evolution, 
And it makes more sense to me than Genesis chapter 1. And he then concluded that he didn't need Jesus anymore. You say, how did he make that connection between Genesis and Jesus? Well, this is from this guy's own mouth. He said, because as I keep reading the scriptures and I get to Romans chapter 5, I see that because of one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. That one man, obviously, is Adam. Thus, Jesus came to undo the work of the first man. Because of Jesus, we can have righteousness, right? We agree with everything that I'm saying. And he said, but if Adam wasn't real, if I've determined that evolution is correct and Adam is not a real person, then what need do I have for Jesus? What did Jesus come to undo? Paul's whole argument falls apart if Adam isn't real. Did you see the severity of this? Our faith begins here in chapter 1 of Genesis, that the Bible is recounting events as they happened. We accept that by faith. This is just one of the foundational components that is present in the book of Genesis. We see God sets biblical boundaries for marriage in Genesis. He tells us how many genders there are. He instructs us uh, a human's relationship to work, our relationship to God. And I trust that you get the point. The book of Genesis serves a critical role in our faith. Either this book is from God and it's all true, or right from the beginning, we're just encountering lies, and none of it is. And you just have to decide for yourself. And so one of the things that I hope that this study of the Old Testament does for you is that it grounds your faith. That as we just slowly work through these chapters of the Bible, you're seeing time and time again, God is trustworthy. These things did happen. God has proven himself. He reveals himself so that by the end of the year, you think to yourself, this isn't blind faith. What I'm asking, what I'm being asked to believe here isn't just throwing a dart at a wall. I, I've seen God reveal himself over the course of the whole Old Testament. I know he's real, right? And then that makes the jump to Christ so much shorter. It's just the next logical step. If God has revealed himself through 39 books of the Old Testament and he says that Jesus is the only way, of course, I believe it. It makes sense to me. Uh, I wanted to share this story as well. On Wednesday, I was talking to uh, one of the little kids at church. I heard they had the opportunity to talk to their cousin about the Lord. I believe their cousin asked the question like, what do you believe about God or how do you know God is real? And this kid in Kids for Truth began to talk to their cousin about God. And so I asked him, I was like, what'd you say? How'd you answer that question? And they said, well, I began in the book of Genesis. I wanted this person to know from the beginning what God is like. And so I explained to them God from Genesis and Adam and Eve, and I talked to them about sin. And I believe this person ended up even talking about Jesus starting in Genesis. How awesome is that? Right? This is why we make an investment and teaching our kids. But even this child knows our faith begins in Genesis. If you want to tell someone about God, it starts here. You need to know about sin and its consequences if we're ever going to get to Jesus. I wanted to mention one more theme from the book of Genesis before we start answering the questions. 
And that is this, that even in the first book of the Bible, the way is being paved for Jesus Christ. Now, I know on the surface that might sound a little bit hard to believe, a little impossible, right? Matthew is 39 books away. From from Genesis' perspective, it's thousands of years before Jesus ever walks the earth. And yet, as I pointed out to you last week, we are confronted in the very, like, first couple of chapters with Genesis 3.15, in which we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And from chapter 3, verse 15, we're still in the garden. God is in the middle of handing out punishments to mankind, and he puts us on a collision course when he says that there is an offspring of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent. And so from this point forward, we're waiting for that offspring to come. We're waiting for this promise to be realized. We're on high alert looking for that human who will defeat, as Revelation calls him, that ancient serpent who is the devil. So I hope you're excited to study the Old Testament this year. Please, we got plenty of notebooks here. Let me encourage you to join us in this reading plan. Our faith is going to be grounded. We're going to see Jesus all the time. This is exciting. If you're not in the habit of reading God's word daily, we're trying to make this as accessible as possible for you. Go through the reading plan with us. Answer a couple of questions. Immerse yourselves in God's word. Let yourself be changed by it. And know God, not just because I'm telling you about him, Because you're reading and seeing for yourself what God is like, what he expects of you, and you're seeing the way cleared for Jesus. So, with that, we'll pick up where we left off last time in Genesis chapter 6 and the story of Noah. So, first question from Genesis chapter 6. When Noah's story picks up, even though it's six chapters into the Bible, already 1,500 years have passed since the time of Adam and Eve. That's almost hard to believe, really, that in so short a couple of pages, 1,500 years of human history has passed, and we kind of just get dropped into the middle of things, and we kind of ask the question, well, how's humanity doing? Since that original fall in the garden, are they seeking after God? Are they making a point to worship him, to obey him? Is humanity doing all right? Well, how's humanity described in verse Five. You guys tell me. Jeff. Yeah, uh, greatly wicked. Every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continual. Things are absolutely out of control. Humanity has spiraled into incredible wickedness. The text actually says that God regrets that he had made man on earth. It, It grieved him that his creation had come to this point. And God determines that he is going to blot out mankind from the face of the earth. Now, this wasn't one of your questions, but what does God's response to humanity here in Genesis chapter 6 reveal to us about his attitude towards sin? What might you conclude about God and his relationship to sin just from Genesis chapter 6? I'm sorry, Christine. He hates it. Yes. I I, I was just reminded as I was thinking about this that Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, is not just Bible theory. It's just not some New Testament concept. Twice now in the Bible, in the garden, you eat this fruit, you die. Here in Genesis chapter 6, you sin against God, you die. And if this is the path that humanity has set itself on, 
there's no hope for us. Right? We, it is, should be abundantly evident to us that we need a mediator. We need someone who can bridge that gap between us and God because clearly, left to ourselves, we're not getting any better. No one is seeking after God here. The table is set for someone to come and span that gap. We know God hates sin, but in contrast to all of humanity, how is Noah described in verse 9? Claire. Yeah, you got it exactly. He's a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And I don't want us to take for granted here what the scriptures are talking about when it says that Noah was righteous. This doesn't mean that Noah just looked pretty good in comparison to his culture, right? Everyone was really bad, and maybe Noah just wasn't that bad. No, no, no. When the Bible says that Noah is a righteous man, it speaks about Noah in these glowing terms. And I actually want, I'll put it on the screen for you, but there's a verse in Ezekiel that I think is fascinating. In Ezekiel chapter 14, thousand, maybe a thousand years later, God is talking to Ezekiel about coming judgment. And this is what he says about the judgment that is coming. He says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, in this city, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. What awesome company to be in here. For God to pick any three men, and he picks Job, who is described as like there's no one else on earth like him. He picks Daniel, who we know is the epitome of righteousness in Babylon. And who does he tack onto this list as well? Noah. How awesome is that? From God's own lips, he says, Noah is a righteous man. And so the contrast that we have here between Noah and his culture cannot be any more stark. Here is all of humanity going one direction, engaging in violence and wickedness to the point that God says, I'm going to blot you guys out. But one man and his family stands against the tide and does what is right. He walks with God. To me, this was reminiscent of Joshua when he stands before the people of Israel and he says, you guys pick who you're going to worship, but me and my house, we're serving the Lord. That's the kind of man that Noah was. He takes a stand and he does what's right. So Noah is a great example to us of a person who refuses to conform to the wickedness of his culture and he instead walks with God. And so I asked you then, to consider if you look too much like the world and ask God to help you do what is right even when no one else notices. You know that we share something in common with Noah and that our culture is not seeking after God either? That there are plenty of people who are just doing whatever they want, engaging their flesh, saying, I'm just going to do whatever. And it's up to us to decide, are we going to go along with that and just conform ourselves to the wickedness of our culture or are we going to do what's right? Are we going to take a stand here? I'm afraid that sometimes we care way too much about what other people think. We care way too much about fitting in. We care that we don't kind of stand out. I might look awkward if I do what's right here. Noah didn't care. We need to look to him as an example of someone who says, you know what, Lord, I'm following you. Whatever the cost, whatever anyone thinks about me, I know that your favor is upon the righteous person. 
my relationship to you matters so much more than what this world thinks about me. And so we just purpose today, Lord, give me the grace to stand against the tide of a culture who is just going in one direction and to do what's right. Help me to be righteous when it's not popular. Who are you most concerned about pleasing in your life? That's a question we just got to ask ourselves. Why am I making these types of decisions? All right, getting back to the story of Noah here in Genesis. Uh, God tells Noah, obviously, to build an ark. There is a flood coming. And this ark is going to be the only place of refuge for a remnant of animals and humanity. All of the earth, except for these eight people and representatives of every kind of animal, are going to be destroyed in this flood. Genesis chapter 7 says that there's rain falling from above. The waters of the deep burst forth. There's water kind of coming from both directions here. The rain lasts for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, there is just something terrifying about a flood of water washing over something. We can see it on small-scale events, like maybe a dam that breaks or a tsunami that hits. We can see the effects of water in places like the Grand Canyon, which the creationists believe was caused by the events of the flood, right? We know this is a powerful, terrifying force. And Christians look at this and we say, yeah, this was a global flood, but not everyone believes this. Some people believe that the flood was a local catastrophe, not a worldwide event. For them, a flood that covered the entire earth That's impossible to believe. There's no way that even makes sense, right? Certainly, they wouldn't deny that maybe Noah was, you know, affected by a flood. Perhaps it was regional. Perhaps Noah and the area that he lived in was totally devastated by a flood, and people died. Certainly, the landscape was changed. But a worldwide flood, people look at that and say, "Uh, no, impossible. And so what I want you to do with this question here, is to rather than let your opinion or what you think is possible determine what happened, to let the Bible be your authority. So what evidences did you see in verses 19 to 23 that offer support of the view that the flood covered the whole earth? What language does the text use that says, this was global? What did you see in the text here? Hutch. All of the Yes, that's a great one. All of the mountains were covered by 15 cubits or 20 feet. Now think about this. Water naturally seeks the lowest point, right? So if this was just a regional flood, if this was just in one part of the world, then the flood would have collected at the base of the mountains. But if the scriptures are saying that it covered the mountains, the water has nowhere else to go. It can't run to a lower point. It's actually collecting above the mountains. Yeah, great one, Hodge. What else from the text makes you think this was a global flood? Brenda. Yes, all flesh died that moved on the earth. There are a ton of those, like all or every type of language in these short couple of verses. Let me just read them for you. You said the first one, all flesh died that moved on the earth. All swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. All mankind, everything on dry land died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Now, after reading that description and seeing the all, every type language, would you conclude that this was just a flood that was contained to a regional part of the world? No. This is a global 
flood. I think even logically we could ask the question, if this were just a regional flood, why didn't God save Noah like decades of building and say, why don't you just move to another part of the world and take some animals with you? Right? That'd be a lot easier solution. The flood was the only place of refuge because the whole earth was covered by water. So this has significance because what do you think could be problematic about not taking historical accounts of the Bible literally. Do you see any problems with just concluding that this was a regional flood? What's at stake here? Any thoughts? Christine. Exactly. If we come to a text like Genesis chapter 7, and very clearly the text says the whole earth was covered by water, and we say... That just doesn't coincide with reality. I can't wrap my mind around that. All of a sudden, we become the determiners of truth. And then what happens when we come to other passages of Scripture and we say, well, a donkey can't talk. Manna doesn't show up on the ground. Bodies of water don't part and people walk through on dry ground in the middle of them. No one does miracles. Well, you know, people don't rise from the dead after being in a tomb for three days. Do you see what happens here? When we begin to superimpose what we think happened on the text, it undermines all of the scriptures. And what do we do with anything that is miraculous or hard to believe in the Bible? This is an exercise of faith. Again, is the Bible your authority or is science, is your mind, is your ability to just wrap your mind around something your authority? You have to decide, is this God's word? If so, I'll believe it. Some of these things are hard to understand, but God's word has to be the authority in our life. With our second question from chapter 7, I had us consider another component of Noah's character. There's an idea that is repeated in verse 5, 9, and 16, also in the previous chapter, that further illustrates Noah's relationship to the Lord. What did you see repeated in those verses? It kind of gives you a glimpse as to the kind of person Noah was. Yeah, Andy. Uh, Noah did as God had commanded him. Yeah, Noah did what God commanded him. He was obedient. It sounds simple, right? God says something, Noah does it. But I wanted to point out to you this reality that there is maybe another component to this that we need to consider. Noah's obedience was an act of faith. This is what Hebrews 11 says about Noah. It says, By faith, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I want you to think about a hypothetical conversation that Noah may have had with somebody during the time they were building this ark, right? Someone comes to Noah's backyard and sees him building this giant ship, and they say, Noah, what are you doing back here, man? He says, well, I'm uh, building an ark. Okay, why is it so big? 
Well, God told me to gather the animals. They were going to be placed on this ark. It's for me and my family. There's actually a flood coming that is going to cover the whole earth. No, what? The whole earth? That's unbelievable. No, God told you this? Did, did God even tell you when this flood is going to happen? No. And Noah, you're still going through with this. You're still going to build the ark. And Noah says, yeah, I believe God. 25 years later, same guy. Noah's made more progress on this ark. No, Noah, are you kidding me, man? You're still building? 25 years, still no flood. Noah says, yeah, I believe and Noah obeyed God about an event that was yet unseen. Do you see Noah's faith on display here in this hypothetical conversation? There is an event coming. He doesn't know when, but he is preparing for it. And as such, he received that righteousness that comes only by faith. As Abraham received righteousness that comes only by faith. As you and I receive righteousness that comes only by faith. Faith is the theme that is just running through Genesis here. Noah believed God. And while this is still fresh on our minds, I want to transition to the next question. I actually put these out of order here. So this is actually the second question of Genesis chapter 8. But I wanted to ask you, for what purpose do the following New Testament passages refer to the flood? So according to Matthew 24, 36 to 39, why did Jesus... Refer to the story of the flood. Christine. Because of his coming? Yes. Because of his coming. These verses are a a part of a larger section about Jesus' coming and his return. And he is saying here that this is going to happen without warning. He says, people are going to be in the field, one taken, another left. People are going to be in the mill, one taken, another left. And then he says, and he introduces this whole section by saying, there's already been an event like this in history that has happened. During the days of Noah, everyone on earth was eating, they were drinking, they were getting married. This was just another day to them. They were going about regular activities, and all of a sudden, bam, the flood comes and wipes them all away. Now, hindsight being 2020, what should these people have been doing? You tell me. Should they have been getting married, Christine? They should have been preparing. They should have been doing everything possible to get on that ark with Noah. But they were like, la di da di da another day. Getting married, eating, drinking, within minutes not knowing that they were going to be swept away in destruction. And here's Jesus' point in bringing that story to mind. Jesus says, don't let that be you when I return. Don't be like the people in Noah's day. Jesus says in verse 42, stay awake. You don't know what day the Lord is coming. Verse 44, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, I realize Matthew chapter 24 here, there is some debate about 
the timing of these events. Is Jesus talking about the rapture or the second coming? Who is his audience here? I get all of that. I've spent some time this week trying to study it out. Honestly, I'm still working through it. But here's what I do know generally. The scriptures are clear. Jesus is returning. And the scriptures also are very clear. There are general commands made to all believers. The Lord is returning, so be waiting, stay awake, be sober, be patient, live a holy and godly life in anticipation of this event, of, of this event that is coming. And so now I want to bring this just full, full circle here for you. We just considered that Noah was preparing for an unseen event by faith. Are we also not in a similar position as Noah? Where there is an event that is still future to us, that we don't know the timing of, that it is expected of us that we also be prepared. And I want to ask you this. Each of us is presented with a choice. Do you believe Jesus? And how would I know that you believe Jesus, right? Because there's plenty of people that say, yeah, I do. I've placed my faith in Christ. Well, a lot of people can talk about it, okay? How do we know that Noah believed God. He, he obeyed. He, he started preparing. He, he started constructing a ship. How would I know that you believe what Jesus says about his return? You're obeying. You're preparing. When everyone else in society is like the people in Noah's day, doing ordinary, regular activities of life, thinking they have all the time in the world. Christians should be the ones who are different, who are living almost these radical lives of preparing for an event that is still unseen. You're not laying up treasure in this life. You're not being friends with the world. You're loving others. You're growing a personal holiness. You're dying to self. And this is going to look strange to the casual onlooker. They might come to you and say, you're still believing that Jesus stuff? You're, you're still living your life differently than everybody else, saying no to all the activities I invite you to that are worldly. You're still going to church and giving and serving. And what do you say? Much like Noah, I believe God. So I'm going to prepare for an event that is still unseen, that is still future, that the Bible warns me to be prepared for. And here's a really sobering reality. What would it say about someone if they claimed to believe Jesus, but they weren't preparing for it? What would you conclude about them? Like James says, that faith without works is dead. How's that for a sobering reality, right? All of us need to come to grips with this idea here. The, the, the worst thing that we can do is go back home, settle into our routine, get back on the couch, go back to our hobby and think, yeah, okay, uh, I remember what I heard in Sunday school, but no, we have to be people who are obeying, who are preparing for the return of Christ. Our faith in that event has to produce works, preparation, that we're living for that. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that popular phrase, 
what would Jesus do? Could I suggest maybe another biblical alternative to that phrase? What if Jesus returned today? What decision in your life would you make differently? Would you cancel a subscription? Would you turn off the TV? Would you give half effort at your job? Maybe positively, would you send an encouraging text to someone? Would you invite a neighbor over for dinner? Would you spend more time with family? Would you spend more time in God's word? Would you want to be around other believers more if you knew that Jesus was coming back? Would you want to exhaust yourself for the future kingdom if you knew that Jesus was coming back today? This is just the tip of the iceberg of questions that we could ask, but I trust that the point is not lost on you. Much like Noah was preparing for a future event by faith, so too do we find ourselves in a pretty similar situation where we have to prepare for a future event by faith. Our our lives have to be different than everyone else around us. We cannot be caught off guard by the return of Christ. I hope this is clear to you. I mean, honestly, as I was studying this this week, the Lord rebuked me first. And I was just overwhelmed by the gravity of what I'm seeing here. We have to be different. We have to be obeying what God's word says. We've got to be preparing. How about 2 Peter chapter 3? Why does this passage of scripture mention the story of the flood. Cynthia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. That was awesome. <laughs> totally. You nailed it. There are going to be people in the last days, Peter says, they're going to scoff. They're going to do whatever they want. They're going to live however they want. And they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? Since early times, people have been just doing whatever. And the end of days hasn't happened yet. But Peter says, these people are forgetting that once before the world was destroyed because of man's wickedness, once before God did judge in the flood, he's doing it again, this time not by water, but by fire. And Peter's encouragement is then, since you know that this is going to happen, live a holy and godly life. Be prepared knowing that all things are going to be dissolved by fire one day. You got it exactly on the head, Cynthia. It's similar to what we just considered from Matthew there is coming another day of destruction, not by water, but by fire. Be ready for it. I see we only have a couple minutes left here, so I'm going to skip forward, I think, to Genesis chapter 9. This is in regards to the covenant that God made with Noah. Uh, This word covenant is going to be a key word throughout the Bible. God is going to make covenants with a series of individuals, and in this case, all of humanity, that really just propel the plot of the Bible forward. The different types of covenants in the Old Testament, really there's two. Uh, A covenant is an agreement or a promise. In some covenants, God has a responsibility in the covenant and man has a responsibility. God says, hey, humanity, if you do this and keep your end of the bargain, I will also respond in like kind. 
However, this covenant that God makes with Noah here requires nothing of humanity. He just says, hey, I'm going to do this. And I asked you, well, with this covenant, God tells Noah that he's never going to flood the whole earth again. And as a sign of that promise, God puts his bow in the clouds. And so, here's the question. After reading about the covenant God made with Noah, explain in your own words the biblical significance of seeing a rainbow in the sky after it rains. What should you be thinking? And I asked you to consider these questions. Why did God send a flood in Noah's day? Do you think present-day humanity would be similarly deserving of God's judgment? And what does the presence of a rainbow reveal to us about God? So as you contemplated those questions, you tell me, what should your thought process be when you see a rainbow in the sky? Any ideas? Christine? I'm sorry? God is merciful? Yeah. God's watching? Okay, Andy? Yeah, God keeps his promises, huh? Bonnie? Yeah, right? Uh, do you think it's safe to conclude that our culture today would be equally deserving of a worldwide judgment of God? Totally. Right? And yet, do we have fear? When it starts to rain, when the sky goes dark and we hear thunder and the rain starts to pour, we don't. And after that comes and goes, we see God's sign in the clouds that is a reminder, I'm merciful. I keep my promises. There should be a sense of wonder when we see a rainbow in the sky. Wow. God is so faithful He's so merciful. And yet, I do want to address this as well. There is a sad irony that there is a movement that has taken God's promise and used it as the banner under which they will do all sorts of wickedness. To the point, I'll speak for myself, the rainbow has become a little distasteful to us. Right? It's easy to see the rainbow just being paraded everywhere and to become cynical, to become bitter, to be just kind of grumpy and jaded. Listen, I'm not going to deny the reality that these people are mocking God. That they are using this, as I said a moment ago, as a banner under which they will do all sorts of wickedness. And yet, what should we think even when we see these displays of humanity? Certainly, there are times we're going to be frustrated or angry by it. But could I just offer another way of thinking about this? Be in awe of God's mercy. That these people rightly deserve to be struck down for their mockery of God. And yet, remind yourself, weren't you there one time? Didn't you shake your fist in God's face at one point in your life and say, I'm going to do whatever I want? And you've received great mercy. And if any of these people 
would just bow their knee of their heart and come to Christ in repentance, they too would receive great mercy. God is a merciful God. He is awesome. Let's just remember, we'll leave the judging to God. We'll let him sort everything out in the end, the people who are deserving of his wrath. But why don't we pray for these people? Why don't we plead with them that they would understand the real significance of the bow that is set in the clouds? That there is a merciful God who sent Christ as the greatest demonstration of that mercy so that we could be redeemed, so that we could have a relationship with God that is so obviously severed in the opening chapters of Genesis. I believe we're out of time here. Um, So I'll just comment this from Genesis chapter 11. We get to the story of the Tower of Babel. Again, humanity, they are just unglued. We're not even, what, we're 11 chapters in. We've seen murder. We've seen polygamy. We've seen the mass destruction of humanity. Um, Even in chapter 9, there's this act that happens between uh, Noah and his son. Here in chapter 11, mankind is just rebelling against God. And I ask the question, did the flood fix the real problem on earth? It didn't. The problem was on the ark. So it's very apparent to us that there is still a need for that promise in Genesis 3 to be fulfilled. We we still need someone to come and bruise that of the serpent because he's got his fangs in everybody right now, right? Sin is just running rampant. Lastly, we are, uh, Genesis 11 concludes with uh, Shem's genealogy and who is mentioned at the very end of Shem's genealogy? Abraham, yep. And again, the Bible is not a history book about every single person who ever lived and telling us the events of that. The Bible is propelling forward the story of Jesus Christ. So it's able to skip large chunks of human history to get us from Adam to Noah and to do the exact same thing from Noah to Abraham. And it is with Abraham. We will see in our reading in Genesis next time, Abraham gets a covenant with God. And that is going to anticipate Christ in a way that you know, really begins to fulfill what God is doing in Genesis chapter 3. So with that, I hope you're excited. Again, please join us in this reading plan. This is an awesome uh, thing to be a part of here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the potency of your word. And as we just consider your return, Lord, would you please help us to be prepared as Noah was acting by faith Something is coming. I will change my life because of it. Would you give us that same grace to be able to do that? Would you let our faith manifest itself in works that we would be holy and spotless and put distance between ourselves and ungodliness and live for things that are eternal so that we are not ashamed at your coming, Lord? Please. This is a sobering call for us to consider today, and and we need your help in doing it. Please keep the return of Jesus Christ at the forefront of our minds so that our lives change and we can just be obedient to your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.